0: All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. This episode is going to come out about 12 hours later than it should. I'm still trying to get back into the groove of having some pre-recorded episodes saved up to release. But I wanted to make sure I held to my word and we kept putting these out on a daily basis. So we are on Chapter 4 of Citizens, Cops, and Power, Recognizing the Limits of Community by Steve Herbert. We're on the bottom of page 100. Uh... Authority is the name of this segment. The potential dangerousness of police work then underlies both the masculinist embrace of adventure and the pervasive concern for safety. It also influences the cultural emphasis on police authority to exercise their course of power. Legitimately, police officers need to understand quickly the nature of the scenes to which they are summoned and to determine whether and what kind of threat exists. This is especially important in chaotic situations because danger may lurk. It is thus unsurprising that police officers place tremendous importance on their capacity to assume authority. This is obviously connected to safety and is witnessed most clearly by the tactical training officers receive on how to approach and stabilize scenes of potential danger. The best way to avoid force and to use it wisely if necessary is to approach a scene properly and to quickly dictate the flow of action. This felt need to assert authority becomes ingrained. Even in situations with minimal danger, officers often conduct pat-down searches or request that citizens position themselves in particular ways. For example, one officer I observed demanded that a teenager with whom he was conversing stand up. This made it easier for the officer to look the young man in the eye during an interrogation about goings-on in a nearby park. In another instance a sergeant decided to act authori- authoritatively after a long interaction with the young man during an on-street investigation of an apparent gang-related shooting. The young man was one of three passengers in a car that matched the description of one near the scene of the shooting. After establishing that the young man had been less than truthful, the sergeant pointed his finger toward the young man's face and declared, quote, This is what happens to people who don't tell the truth to the police, end quote. The sergeant handcuffed the young man and escorted him back to the, po- the backseat of a patrol car. In these and many other instances, officers seek to establish their authority to dictate how a situation will unfold. This capacity to establish authority is obviously functional to the core police task of exercising force and can be of considerable public benefit in many situations. In cases of domestic violence, for instance, the safety of all involved is contingent on the rapid establishment of order amid chaos. Of course, overly brusque assertions of authority can exasperate chaos. On a call involving an obviously drunken woman who physically resisted a sergeant's effort to prevent her from entering her home, some 15 officers responded and sought to handcuff the woman. The fervent officers respond, excuse me, the fervent activity and loud admonishments only serve to fuel the woman's resistance. Finally, A female officer stepped forward, talked calmly to the woman, and convinced her to relax sufficiently to allow the arrest. So, even in situations of some disorder, crude assertions of authority can produce more chaos, not less. In terms of making the police more consciously subservient to the public, the cultural assumption of police authority poses obvious problems. If this authority is simply presumed, the police officials, by definition, do not consider the public as co-equal partners. The challenge for the police is to distinguish between emergencies where their authority is necessary and situations like community forums where open discussions can be welcomed. What is a defensible cultural response to potentially violent situations becomes a liability when the police are legitimately asked to open their practices to debate. Hold on one second. I want to make sure I I turn to the right page. My fault, y'all. Yeah, I did. My fault. Sorry about that. Okay, where are we at? Sorry about that. Uh, All right. To an extent, one can empathize with the patrol officer who lamented to me that the public does not fully comprehend how he, quote, can't be officer friendly, end quote, when he believes his first priority is to assert his authority. But this cultural response to the street-level realities the officer faces can reduce the space for the political efficacy of the citizenry. In sum, the police's core coercive function is translated into into cultural emphases that drive the imperative to not, quote, drink the Kool-Aid, end quote. As officers reinforce masculinist notions of adventurousness, of safety, and of deference to their authority, They implicitly reduce the political agency of the citizenry to build more truly co-equal partnerships involves a feminization of police work and arose the police's self-construction as authoritative actors who ensure their safety by commandeering the scenes they enter. If community policing represents a threat to such self-understandings, it must be resisted and strongly. The police's sense of themselves as authoritative is important not just for how they define themselves vis-a-vis the citizenry, but also for how they define themselves to each other. Like workers everywhere, police officers seek to show their capabilities to their peers. But their efforts take on a particularly individualist cast. Officers hope to demonstrate their worth through their own idiocentric exercise of discretionary judgment. These organizational emphases on discretion and specialization are reinforced regularly with considerable consequences for how officers act on issues of public concern. In such fashion, the project of community policing is further thwarted. And then that, that stops the that is the segment on authority. And I think just for what I will speak to from that segment, some of the things that I took away is. The combination, as they were pointing out, uh, from what we speak, spoke on on our last episode, uh, of the adventure-seeking and machismo attitude of police officers, uh, that being mixed in with this the the constant uh, the constant claims of doing certain actions or having po- certain policies and procedures uh, based on safety, uh, in combination with the desire to have, uh, authority in every situation that they are in. All of these three things get to a place of devaluing the citizens and devaluing the people, the communities that they deal with on a regular basis. And those are all things that begin to, uh, build the, uh, hindrances of the legitimacy of police officers. And I know that this right now is speaking about, uh, the police officers' reasonings for resisting community policing, uh, but as I've stated on some of these other episodes, I think that some of the themes and some of the ideas and notions being presented in this uh, piece of literature uh, go far beyond just the concepts of community policing and strike directly at the uh, institution of policing. And I think that uh, understanding some of these uh, for some of these thought patterns of the institution of policing and thought patterns of, of police procedures and policies gets us into a place of understanding why we need to have uh, we need to create new institutions and new uh, organizations and new uh, systems to deal with some of these uh, social issues that we have because of the hindrances that police uh, policing has. All right. Next, let's move on to the next segment. Quote, I need to take ownership in quote specialization, autonomy, and organizational disarray. One of the community police team members with whom I rode was still learning the ropes after just a few months on the job. This became apparent when I asked about his relation with other police units. He told a story about a memo he wrote to the detective unit in his first weeks. He used the memo to outline what he saw as the major problems in his area. He asked for information about any individuals the detectives suspected of creating these problems. There was no response. The officer said he interpreted this to mean that he needed to, quote, take ownership, in quote, of these problems. He inferred that the detectives regarded the memo as evidence that he was sh- shrinking his responsibilities. He heard them communicate, albeit passively, a powerful message that he was on his own. On another afternoon I rode with a patrol officer whose beat included Bluff Top, the large-scale public housing facility. The streets of the facility were frequently dotted with abandoned and improperly parked cars. As we cruised the meandering streets he noticed an abandoned car he had previously ticketed for a tow. He was frustrated that the tow had not yet occurred. I asked him about his strategy for the broader problem of abandoned cars. He told me that he issued tickets when he could. He said nothing about coordinating any such strategy with other patrol officers who worked the beat or with the facility's community police officer. This was particularly striking because this officer formerly worked in the community policing unit and was a devout believer in the theory of, quote, broken windows, end quote. In other words, this officer saw abandoned cars as important symbols of neighborhood decline that would invite more serious crime. He was also presumably well-versed in the importance of coordinated action to address an intractable problem. Yet he, too, was flying solo. Recall that community policing includes an emphasis on solving these more entrenched problems. Police-citizen partnerships should develop both a deep understanding of ongoing concerns and a thorough set of strategies for resolving them. As we have seen... The police are reluctant to surrender the prestige and moral standing they associate with authoritative professional crime fighting. But they are equally reluctant to come together to address issues like abandoned cars in a in a coherent and comprehensive way. Implicit here is a valorization of individual autonomy and capability, a respect for any given officer's discretionary authority, a recognition that one must, quote, take ownership, end quote, of one's responsibilities. A consequence is a frequent lack of coordinated action. As one officer told me, quote, around here, one hand does not know what the other is doing, end quote. One obvious manifestation of this organizational disarray is the strained relation between the patrol operation and the community policing team. I saw little evidence that productive communication occurred across this bureaucratic division. Some patrol officers said they carry business cards of the community police team officer assigned to their beat and distributed them to residents who complained of an ongoing problem. Others said they often acted upon requests by community police officers to engage in extra patrol of a particular block or street corner suspected of hosting criminal activity. But never did any of the officers from either patrol or the community police unit Describe any thoroughgoing cooperative efforts to address the underlying causes of an intractable problem. Indeed, a few patrol officers cannot even name the community police officer who worked their beat. One patrol sergeant with whom I had rolled previously worked in a community police unit. He described the community police operation as a, quote, garbage can, end quote, into which police officers dump various nuisances they consider not worth their time. Patrol officers wished to focus on, quote, serious crime, end quote, and saw community police work as trivial. One patrol officer with whom community police experience, excuse me, one patrol officer with community police experience, Complained that a typical patrol officer did not understand what community police officers actually did. As a consequence, he acknowledged, there was very little sharing of information between the two units. For their part, patrol officers operated largely as autonomous units. An exaggerated instance of this was the patrol officer who spent much of the time I rode with him outside the beat to which he was assigned. He focused on one particular house he believed was the site of ongoing drug activity. He knew many of the residents and talked regularly with the landlord. He obviously wanted to show me his in-depth understanding of the house and to document his efforts to reduce his capacity to host criminal activity. But he also made clear that his efforts were wholly his own. Another patrol officer told me that he might refer a matter to the community police unit, such as long-term tensions between apartment residents and their landlord. However, if he gathered any intelligence about a hub of suspected criminal activity, he did not share it. This would amount in his terms to, quote, passing the buck, end quote. He strongly preferred to investigate his on, to investigate this on his own. That was the best way he said to, quote, learn things, end quote, and to take effective action. Part of the issue here is the bureaucratic division of labor and the manner by which it limits officers' focus. For instance, Veteran officers often complain that younger officers are much less group oriented than their predecessors. Gone, they suggest, is a greater sense of collective responsibility for monitoring and solving problems. They attribute this to the progressive parceling of responsibilities into specialized units. Indeed, community policing is cited as one instance of this. Some veterans believe that the creation of a separate community police unit has reduced the sense of responsibility patrol officers feel for their beats. Beyond these bureaucratic barriers, however, lies a belief that credit and competence are individually earned and that officers should spend their discretionary time as they wish. This was most obvious during my ride-alongs with three different officers with less than a year's experience. Two officers patrolled their beats with little discernible purpose. They displayed minimal knowledge of their beats. They articulated no explanation for how they spent their time. They lacked direction both figuratively and literally. They cruised without a go and they frequently got lost trying to reach the locations to which they were dispatched. By contrast, the third rookie officer possessed a strong focus. He spent much time parked at a gas station in a poor neighborhood. As cars came in for fueling, he focused on those that were particularly run down. If he spotted such a car, he would input his license plate into his in-car data terminal. He searched, in particular, for information that the car's operator possessed a suspended driver's license. Such an offense in Seattle was subject to an immediate fine and an impounding of the car. The officer enjoyed this activity because he was often able to ticket and tow one or more vehicles during each shift. Regardless of his sense of accomplishment, the striking fact was that he acted on his own. No sergeant either endorsed or supervised his work. No apparent effort had been made to determine if this was, in fact, the most productive and effective use of his time. Indeed, officers had their own idiocentric preferences for how to handle time not devoted to responding to calls. One officer took a great interest in juveniles. He learned the names of many of the teenagers in his area and tried to determine if any of them were in trouble or headed for it. Occasionally, he got other officers involved in these efforts. Once during a night when I accomplished, an, excuse me, occasionally he got other officers involved in these efforts. Once during a night when I accompanied another officer, the officer with the juvenile focus wanted to visit a home where he thought he might locate a runaway girl. The officer with whom I rode told me that his colleague frequently requested such assistance. He used this incident to describe the extent to which he and the other officers were given free reign. He listed other officers work that night and described their tendencies. These ranged from a pair of women who patrolled in high crime areas to a senior officer who looked for places to nap. Another officer with whom I rode informed me that he enjoyed proactive police work. However, he could name only a few locations where he concentrated any such efforts. He visited none of them during the four hours I spent with him. In sum, the police define authority and competence in largely individualist terms. Despite the tight sense of fraternity within the organization, Fueled by collective concerns about outside meddlers and by the need to protect one another when danger arises, officers demonstrated an inability to develop collective strategies to address long standing problems. Patrol officers rarely interacted with their community police team colleagues, and individual officers largely acted as lone wolves in whatsoever proactive strategies they did adopt. There was a striking lack of concerted, coordinated effort to confront the full complexity of those instances of crime and disorder that generated consistent complaints. In short, perhaps the best place for the police to build community is among themselves. And that brings us to a stopping point again. I think that uh, one of the things that stands out to me in, in that chapter is the lack of a collective And cohesive strategy for dealing with these uh, issues that uh, are that are relegated to police officers and relegated to the institution of policing. Uh, I think another one of the things that stands out to me is how regularly and how often police officers uh, engage in activities that are more about keeping quotas up or having a certain number Uh, or or hitting a certain number of arrests or as what was pointed out in here was uh, the officer was proud that once a shift he was able to impound a car and give somebody a a ticket or a a fine or whatever. And I think too often that that is one of the things that is being relegated to the institution of policing uh, is not a responsibility to try to make things safer or make things, make a community Serve a community it 's more about serving the status quo it 's more about uh, finding ways of uh, putting money back into the city 's pockets or back into the county 's pockets back into a state 's pockets uh, uh, I think that one of the things that should be pointed out is this guy talked about how he looked for rundown beat up cars to pull people over to see if somebody 's license was suspended, and you can almost i don 't think it is is a hard leap to say that somebody that is in a rundown, beat up car who ends up having their, is driving with a suspended license and has their car towed and is given a ticket is in a less advantageous position to get their car back from being towed and to have that ticket paid than somebody who was in a nicer car. And it's nothing that says being in a nicer car as opposed to being in a more rundown car makes it that your license is uh, more likely to be suspended. And I, I just think that these one of the things that is prevalent throughout this book is that the negative aspects of the institution of policing, some of the less humane things, some of the less. Uh, again, some of the more negative things, I just use the word negative are things that disproportionately affect poor people are things that dis- disproportionately affect poor neighborhoods and uh, poor locales and uh, and working class neighborhoods, working class locales. And you can bet if it's a police officer that is uh, being. That is judging if they're judging a car by the way it looks you can bet that this same officer is judging human beings by the way they look and it, it and is pulling people over who are uh, of color or who are black more often than he's pulling over somebody who's white there's all these implicit biases that goes along with uh, policing and the institution of policing that people just uh call a hunch or call a gut feeling and really there their prejudices their biases and these things uh have a disproportionate uh, a negative effect on Poor people on working class people and on black people and of other people of color and so i just think that again these are things that when you come from a neighborhood and from a community where the these things are prevalent throughout your entire life these are the reasons that people that the policing is not legitimated uh among certain groups of people in our country in our society all right we're on page 106 i think we got time for one more segment the, quote, bad apple, end quote, narrative in the the marginalization of the citizenry. Various emphases within the culture of the police, then, help explain why officers resist public input and oversight and why they act with minimal cohesion in addressing ongoing problems. The narrative officers employ to explain criminal behavior is an additional factor that helps minimize police community interaction. The police tend to explain crime as acts committed by a select number of, quote, bad apples, end quote. This narrative reinforces the police's image as authoritative law enforcers and helps downplay any significant role for the community in meaningful and meaningfully assisting with problem solving efforts. Recall again the Vignette that introduced chapter three. Of the lieutenant who chastised the justice system for not dealing aggressively with young car thieves his solution to crime was obvious find the bad actors and punish them through ostracism such thinking is hegemonic within the organization when asked to explain why one neighborhood experienced a high number of calls for service an officer asked me quote do you want the actual reason or the politically correct reason end quote the quote actual reason end quote was that the area was home to an unusually large number of people who received federal housing assistance through the Section 8 program. The officer believed that these impoverished people were more likely to offend and thus that their clustering generated a localized crime problem. The way forward for him was simple. Remove them from the midst of the otherwise peaceful community. Or, as another officer summarized it, quote, crime disappears when the bad guys are in jail, end quote. Indeed, catching, quote, bad guys, end quote, is the principal motivation of many officers. This informs their geographies. One officer, for example, explained that he looked for places to patrol that were, quote, target rich, end quote. He sought locales where he could find criminal behavior and acquire enough evidence to justify an arrest. One of his favorite places was a strip of cheap motels where small scale drug dealing and prostitution were commonplace. Because these activities were often visible, the officer usually acquired enough probable cause to investigate further. This often yielded an arrest. This same desire for an easy citation motivation, excuse me, this same desire for an easy citation motivated the officer described earlier who set up in the gas station looking for drivers with suspended licenses. Another officer described the street on which that gas station was located as in, quote, easy, end quote, place to find evidence of criminal wrongdoing and thus to secure an arrest. This desire to isolate and remove bad apples from an area comports with the moralistic understanding officers develop to understand their work. Police work involves a cleansing of communities, a removal of the polluting stain of criminality. For this reason, officers often celebrate an arrest. For many, a day's work is incomplete without one. This helps explain why the community police officers embraced the short-lived quote power community policing end quote, model and enabled them to experience the moral victory of an arrest, a far more satisfying prospect than an ongoing series of inconclusive meetings. And this narrative of morally necessary expulsion coheres with the, quote, broken windows, end quote, ideology frequently employed to justify a range of police tactics. In practice, broken windows are people and fixing broken windows means arresting them. For instance, many officers focus on those who loiter around areas of suspected drug activity. Enforcing statutes on loitering is easier than enforcing statutes on drug delivery. So officers favor the loitering statutes. These statutes also comport with the bad apple narrative and its emphasis on expulsion. Two implications of this narrative deserve stress. One is the manner by which it leads officers to discredit other components of the criminal justice system, primarily the courts. If expulsion is necessary, then detention must be lengthy. Because the police can only arrest, they depend on courts to impose stiff sentences. They seethe when this fails to occur. When one officer was asked what members of the community could do to help reduce crime, his message was simple and forceful. Elect politicians who will require judges to send criminals up the river for a long time. This officer's statement illustrates the second implication of the bad apple narrative, a diminished role for the citizenry in helping reduce crime and disorder. Notice that the officer suggests that community members act most critically as voters who only indirectly affect the police through the political officials they elect. The officer seems not even to entertain the possibility that a more direct connection between citizen and police is possible. The role he envisions for the community is rather passive. Implicit in the bad apple narrative is an inferred is an infected community. While one could potentially attribute a role to community dynamics in allowing or promoting the infection, officers downplay this possibility. Instead, an emphasis on the moral stain of evildoers leads officers to stress officers to stress the need for expulsion. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Trying to turn the page. This valorizes police action over community action because only the police, with their tactics, bravery and coercive tools, can surgically extract the bad actors. The community is thus demoted to a mere information provider as the, quote, eyes and ears, end quote, of the police. Even the patrol officer with prior work on the community policing team indicated that the most critical role for the citizenry is to provide complaints. Such complaints, he argued, make evident where a problem is emerging, thereby helping to galvanize a police response. The role for the citizenry is thus to help officers isolate wrongdoers and then to step back when the cavalry arrives. In this way, a notion of citizen agency, of citizens as co-equal partners in developing and enacting overarching strategies, is diminished. Once again, police superiority emerges as the dominant narrative even if presented as the virtuous extraction of cancerous evil. Perhaps the public can point out the bad apples, but shaking them out of the tree is strictly a police matter. And even if the bad apple narrative possesses some verity, there is little consideration of any wider dynamics that explain their presence in a particular area and little role for working with the citizenry to comprehend and address these dynamics. When the police employ this narrative of crime and is possible, Eradication they downplay the robust role for citizen involvement that community policing potentially represents And then we got one more segment here that is the conclusion which is just about a page But I do want to point out uh, for me the thing that stands out the most in that segment that we in the passage we just read is This concept or this idea that uh, if you just remove uh, somebody who is quote unquote a bad apple and just throw them in jail that fixes the problem that fixes the issue and and that is what we have seen so many times in our uh, society is uh, mandatory minimums on sentences things like three strikes and you're out uh... all of these different things to increase the amount of time that people who commit crimes have uh... meanwhile The 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 root things that the causes instead of the effect, the root things that lead to these crimes manifesting like education, money for education has been cut back through the years as more money has went to prison. and to policing money for. uh, uh, Poverty programs has been cut back and decreased over the years as more money has been pushed into uh, policing and into the prison industrial complex. Uh, One of the other things that's happened is. Money has been, uh, we we, we heard point out here, a man, a police officer talk about how he believed that public housing, that Section 8, the people that lived in Section 8 were the people who were leading to more crime happening and, and causing more crime happening. And the fact of the matter is, is that. Yes, it is true that poverty leads to more crime, that when you have areas that are impoverished, generations of families and and communities that are impoverished, it leads to more crime. But instead of trying to ostracize people because they are poor, because they are in poverty, we should be trying to uh, uh, build up those people to uh, eradicate poverty, to eradicate these circumstances. We live in uh, a, a country that is overflowing with resources. And instead of those resources being equitably and equally divvied out and dispersed out, they are hoarded by people. Uh, And and so I just think that again there 's so often that the the whole concept of policing completely focuses on dealing with the effects and not the causes, and we have to begin to build up a uh, the type of consciousness starting here in our city in our county in our area of not just of not dealing with the causes excuse me of not dealing with the effects but dealing specifically with the causes uh because you can uh deal with the effects as much as you want as long as the causes continue to be there you will continue to see these issues manifesting uh, so here let's knock out this last page conclusion Bittner correctly emphasized the centrality of coercive force to the structure and organization of the police the, the capacity for such force is largely what makes the police a public institution of such symbolic significance It also helps to explain why the tensions between subservience, separation, and generativity are so vividly exemplified through an analysis of the police community relation. Given their coercive authority, it is necessary that the police fall under public sway. The risk of an emergent police state ensures that the narrative of police subservience to citizen oversight will forever retain power. However, The capacity for coercive force also means that excessive subservience might leave the police susceptible to unwarranted uses by a particular social group. The liberal preoccupation with state neutrality and its attendant emphasis on the regulation of the police through law is quite understandable. Such legally produced neutrality should help ensure that the police do not suppress a disfavored minority group. But the capacity for coercive force also helps generate the moral framework in which the police operate and through which they construct their epistemologies of community and their preferred relation to the citizenry. My discussion here. Ex- Ugh, fuck, I'm fucking my, my fault. let do this. My discussion here explicates further why the projects of separation and generativity stand in general tension with the ideal of subservience. This tension is exemplified in ongoing officer resistance to community policing. The ability to exercise coercive force is implicated in the cultural world officers construct, specifically in their emphases on masculinist, adventurousness, safety, and authority. Each of these reinforces the notion of police separation from the citizenry, although not in keeping necessarily with liberalism's stress on state neutrality. Their sense of separation derives instead from their self-construction as competent professionals. Police understand themselves as superior to the untrained public and arrogate to themselves the right to act forcefully and authoritatively. In so doing, they obscure notions of a citizenry with a robust degree of a political agency. The police also obstruct a more active role for the citizenry via their heavy reliance on a morally-laden narrative of crime causation that emphasizes the ill effects of selected bad apples. This narrative implicitly trumpets the police as the agency of extraction. The citizenry is diminished as mere providers of information for police-generated tactics. Even when the police are made aware of issues that community members wish to see addressed, they are unlikely to develop a coordinated strategy in response. A cultural emphasis on individual discretion and autonomy and a bureaucratically constructed sense of specialized authority work to keep officers in general isolation from one another. Collective efforts by the police to formulate a comprehensive approach to any problem are uncommon. All of these police dynamics help share how police relate to the citizenry. They also shape how the citizenry understands and evaluates the police. I use chapter five to examine how citizens assess these dynamics within the police force and between the police and themselves. And that brings us to the end of chapter four. But what up, what up? Not shit, not shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got you, I got you. I'm finna end this. I got you. Okay, bet okay, what's up, what's up? I'm a holler at you.